Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting promise, and I will be their God. Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And then Ephesians two eleven through 13. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we're filled with such expectation because you are a living God. You're a personal God. You're a God that has spoken. And you have preserved your voice and this word for thousands of years. And its testimony has lived in countless men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So how can we not come with hope for our own lives? And so in faith, we thank you in advance for what you'll do. In Christ's name, amen. In 2009, the website Politifact won the Pulitzer Prize for national reporting and specifically for monitoring political claims made by politicians, and they would assign six different uh, degrees or categories. Uh, true, mostly true, half true, mostly false, false, and pants on fire. Um, and, uh, you know, I, to be fair to politicians, right, they're the ones that get spotlighted with this. If that happened to any of us, I wonder how we'd fare, right? Or any vocation. Um, but that, along with a score of other articles, if you just type in promise into search, you will find article and article about mostly broken promises. And what does that tell us? That promises still matter today. They still matter. And um, it's kind of interesting because in a day and age when truth is said to be relative, we believe that except when it comes to promises. Promises aren't relative. And while we get that on an individual basis, I don't think we get it on a foundational basis. What I mean is we're well aware about individual promises that get kept or broken, 
But I don't think we're so aware about the promises that we have built our lives upon. The promises that we have erected our lives on. Foundational promises. For instance, one of those promises might be the promise um, that if you increase your income and your standard of living, you'll increase your security. And so upon that promise, we build other things like every job I have must increase in salary. Every relationship I have is ultimately a networking opportunity. Uh, I must have my best work be seen by the right people. And so we begin to stack up our life built upon that promise. Or another one might be, uh, if I find the right person, I'll be happy. And upon that promise, we build the idea of compatibility is the key. And so I need to have my list and I need to find someone who I can merge my goals with. Or it might be the idea that if I live a good enough life, the afterlife will be good for me, or at least not bad. All of us have promises that we have built our lives upon. And I would ask you, are you aware of those promises in your own life? I'd even say this week, would you take a few minutes and think about what are the promises upon which I have built the life that I'm living? It's critical because every decision relates to them. This summer when I was on sabbatical, uh, one of the books that I had a chance to read was a book called Living by God's Promise by Joel Beakey and James LaBelle. In fact, it really was the inspiration for this series. I'll refer to it throughout. But LaBelle was a builder before he was an author. And he said this. He said, I learned, there was a phrase we would say in building, I learned this, that whatever problems you have in the foundation will follow you to the roof. Whatever problems you have in the foundation, they're going to show up in the, you know, in the fact that the wall isn't square or that the windows are off. And I think you could even reverse that and say that, you know, the problems that you have up here in this layer of your life, you can follow them down to the foundation of your life, that lower level. And so as we begin this series on the promises of God, the place we have to start is the foundation. And that's where I want to start. And how is a life built upon the promise of God look different for each of us? How, that, how might that look? And so uh, I want to do that today by looking just at two questions. What's the foundation made of? What's it made of? And how do we get our way onto it? Okay? So let's look at those two things together. First of all, what's the foundation made of? When you read the Bible, you find that God communicates his desire for our obedience in basically three ways. Commandments threats and warnings, and then promises. And promises are like a middle thing. Promise, promises, you've got God's purpose, and you've got what God is going to do. You've got his plans and how he's going to execute. And promises sit there in the middle. For instance, I might say to you, I'm going to take you to the movies on your birthday. Now, that statement isn't me taking you to the movies, but it's more than just kind of desiring to, Right? The promise sits in between those two things. And as you read the Bible, it is full of wonderful promises. 
It is a book that just is, you know, uh, overflowing with promises. We heard just in that little uh, passage where God spoke to Abraham, the very things that he promised him. I mean, all of us would say, I went in on that. Well, I've got good news for you. If you're a follower of Christ, you are in on it. All those wonderful things that he said. But we could add to these. You know, the promise that God gives in Psalm 1 where he says the godly will not only flourish when times are good, they will flourish even when times are bad. That you can actually be successful at the same time that you're failing. Or the promise in Malachi that you can never out-generous God. You can never outgive him. He says, go ahead, try to do that, and I will pour more upon you. Or maybe it's the promise that God will cast our sins as far as the east is from the west, to the promise that he will adopt us into his family. Or the future promise where he says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what I have in store for those that love me. The Bible is just full of these promises. The apostle Peter calls them very great and precious promises. And he makes an interesting tie where he says it's through these promises that transformation happens. He says through his very great and precious promises, we participate in the divine nature and we escape the corruption and we learn to add these beautiful qualities to our lives. How? Through the promises of God. And as great as they are, there's a variety of them. I mean, you look at the Bible, there's legal promises. And this kind of gets to the question. We're going to get to it more. You know, I hear you say promise immediately, and I just think, well, I don't know about this, Glenn. Because, you know, I've had a lot of unanswered prayers. And we're going to be tackling that as we move through the series. But maybe this will be a first crack at it. And that is there are various kind of promises in the Bible. You've got legal promises. Those are the promises that say you have to obey it exactly or you don't get what was promised. There are conditional promises, like the famous verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes, that's the condition. You've got to believe. Or even some of the promises that have to do with God uh, you know, delivering us from sickness and giving us health. They're conditioned on his greater wisdom and timing. For instance, if God's greater goal for you is to have the character of his son, Jesus Christ, it may be that he has to withhold healing so he can build up endurance. Some of God's promises are universal. Some of them are particular. A universal promise would be, again, John 3.16. It's extended to everybody, all who believe. Anybody in this room who believes will be saved. But then there's particular promises, like when God said to Moses' brother Aaron, listen, you're going to be high priest, and your sons, at least in Israel, and the nation Israel, are going to be high priests. That was particular to Aaron, not to anybody else. And then lastly, there are absolute promises, and these are things that God's going to do no matter what, like send his son to redeem us. He says this in Isaiah, For I myself, the Lord, will give a sign, the virgin will be with child. That is an absolute promise. Now, we understand this, understand this somewhat because we have different kind of promises. We have informal promises. For instance, maybe, uh, you know, uh, young people here, your mom says to you, uh, I want you to unload the dishwasher before you go do this. And you go, I will. Or maybe your roommate says that to you. I will. That's an informal promise. 
But then there are other kind of promises, like when someone stands up and takes an oath, right? Raises their right hand, or at a wedding ceremony. And we would say, you know, those are, that's of a different level. They're weighty, there's more gravity. And you know what the good news is? God's promises are like the second. God's promises are these official, weighty promises. They are cemented in a super promise, which is called the covenant. Now, a covenant, we've talked about this before, but the attributes of it are really significant because God's covenant isn't said in private. He says it publicly. It's not just something he kind of says casually. It's, it's legal. And it's not something he just says heartlessly. He says it with love. This is the covenant that he makes with his children, with those that love him. And why is that important? It's important because that tells you right off the bat that God is serious about keeping his promise to you. That God has literally raised his hand up and sworn by himself that he will keep all his promises to his children. That's what the covenant is communicating. And it's this that he's inviting you and I to build our lives upon. That promise. When I was growing up in my home in Pittsburgh, we had an attic, like a lot of people have. And uh, every now and then, my dad would send me up there for something, and he would say, son, be careful. You know, don't step where the pink stuff is. You know, don't step where the insulation is. We don't got flooring all the way up there. Make sure you stay on the boards, because if you don't stay on the boards, you're going to fall through the ceiling. Well, you know, many of us, I think the reason we're anxious about our lives is because really we have attic promises. That's how we're living our lives. The promises we have are really not something we can go like that for. We're just kind of like walking on eggs. God doesn't want that for his people. He doesn't want that for you. He wants children that have a firm foundation. And know they're walking on a rock where they can't slip. And we could just take, for example, this extraordinary promise that he gives to Abraham that we heard read. Even though Abraham is 99, past the age of having kids, he's childless. God says to him, this is what I'm going to do for you. You're going to be the father of not just one child, but you're going to be a father of countless cross-cultural community of believers that go through all the ages and kings and royalty will come through it. And just so you know I'm going to do it, I'm going to change your name to say that you're going to be that. He makes this promise to Abraham, but that's not all he does. Two chapters earlier, he actually cuts a covenant with him. Some of you are familiar with this. In the Old Testament, they literally would cut animals in half and divide them, and each person would walk through, and basically you were saying, if I break the promise, may this happen to me. But Abraham has a vision, and he doesn't go through, only God goes through. He's saying to Abraham, I will keep my promise no matter what. You heard the word out of Numbers that said, God is not like a man that he should lie. He won't go back on his promise. I was thinking, too, a particular uh, episode of the show The Office and uh, where, you know, Michael Scott, uh, it's the the Scott's Tots episode, you know, where Michael, some some of you remember it, uh, but 
you know, Michael Scott, the boss, who is just like completely vain and loves praise and loves to be the center of attention, he makes this promise to a bunch of under-resourced kids that I'm going to pay for your college education. <laughs> well, the note comes in, you know, 10 years later, and he's trying to get out of the meeting, and they're like, you've got to go. He shows up, and they have this incredible celebration. They're singing, they're dancing, they write a rap for him, and it finally comes to that moment where he has to say, I can't pay for your college education. But it, but it gets worse than that. You know, what he says is, but, you know, what every college student needs is a laptop. I can't give you a laptop, but, you know, what you do need are laptop batteries, and I'm going to give you a laptop battery. You know, so this is the promise. This is where it goes. And it's really, you know, a good, I think, illustration of just the promise of men. Maybe promises that you've heard. But God's promise isn't false. It's true. It's not private. It's public. It's not casual, it's official, and your name isn't on the line, his name is on the line. This is the whole beauty of the covenant. I mean, one of the phrases that we'll come back to that the old Puritans used to use, and they, they used to talk about suing God. Isn't that bold language? Suing God. Because the covenant was this legal idea, and what that they meant, you know, holding God to his promise, which just puts a big smile on God's face. God's promises may be complex, we don't understand it all, but I promise you, if you hang in there, you will see that he is worth suing. He is worth holding to the promise. And the great demonstration of this is Jesus Christ's crucifixion. That was basically how far would God would go to keep his promise. He made all these promises throughout the Old Testament that he would forgive sin, steadfast love, that he would show mercy. But how do you do that with people that have broken the covenant? It was clear. You break the covenant, you get curses. You keep the covenant, you get blessing. You and I have broken God's covenant over and over. I mean, let's forget about all the particulars. Just let's keep to the big thing. Loving him and loving our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. The promise is broken. And so what he does is the second person of the Trinity comes in the person of Jesus Christ and he fulfills the promises of the covenant. He obeys them. He takes the curse. We get the blessing. The crucifixion is all about this is how far God will go to keep his promises for you and I. And it leads us to the foundation stone, the cornerstone of the foundation. And it's this side that God gives not just his promise, he gives himself. He gives himself. In verse 8, God said to Abraham, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourners. But then he ends, And I will be their God. Oftentimes, uh, if a spouse dies, they leave everything to their other spouse. Which means, why? Because of the promise, right? You get the promise. You get the person. You get everything else thrown in. It's the same thing with God. I have this little quote from a Puritan that says, when a man has God, he has all. When you are spiritually married to God through Jesus Christ, you get all the promises that were given to Jesus Christ the groom. That's why the book of Hebrews says that all the promises of the Bible are yes in Jesus. And what's really significant about that, I think something that helps us analyze our lives is that behind the promise is a person. Now, 
let me try to explain this. I think many people, and most of us, we look to life to make good on our promises. Let me explain what I mean. Let's take another random promise. Work hard and good things will happen. Anybody ever heard that promise? Work hard and good things will happen. Well, unless you're a sharecropper in the 1920s, unless you're a Hebrew slave during the time of Egypt, unless you're a college kid that went way into debt and hoped they could work in their field and not work in their field, right? And why doesn't that come through? Because we expect a principle, we expect a life principle to keep a promise. But promises are only made by people. Promises are always personal. You can't trust life to make those promises. You can't trust this invisible principle out there. And we live so many by those things. You hear them all the time. You know, you're going through a crisis and someone says, well, everything will turn right in the end. Maybe not. It may not turn all right in the end. It may get worse. We can't trust in those things. You can only trust in a person. And the person to trust in is the God that would give up his son to keep his promises. He is the person, the guarantee. That's why when the Old Testament folk would pray, like Nehemiah, David, they would start off their prayers by saying, Oh, great Lord who keeps his covenant. Which leads us to the second point. How do we get onto that foundation? Because we can't presume that the promises are for us. You can't just presume, and and, um, this is the kind of way it works in America where folks think, well, generally, you know, God is going to bless America. He's going to bless me. But the Bible doesn't teach that. He blesses America, and he blesses us a lot. If you paid attention to the uh, New Testament passage... Paul's speaking to Gentiles, those are non-Jews, and he says to them, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. You were so far away, you had no hope in God. I mean, you were, you were so blind to them, you didn't even know they existed. That's how far away your sin had taken. Sin distances us from God. It distances us from his promises. It forfeits our right to the promises And so we find ourselves far away from them. We are not naturally close to those promises. But then we hear this good news that through the blood of Jesus Christ, through his life given for us, we're brought back near to the promises. But we only have right to them through union with Christ. That's where we have the right to the promises. My kids will have a right to my great, great fortune. They have a right because they have my name. And it's the same thing about God's children. They have the name of Christ. Jesus is the head of the covenant. He's the mediator. He's the one that has the authority to say, here's the blessing for the promise. God put him in charge of that. Which means, by definition, they are promises of grace. Grace. And this is where they're very different from someone that lives according to life principle promises. I was, uh, I'm on the candidates and credentials committee of our presbytery, and we examined people wanting to come into the ministry. And uh, we were uh, examining a guy, and he was telling his faith story, his testimony. And he said, you know, I played football in high school, 
And um, if I played bad, I assumed it was because I hadn't spent enough time with God during the week. So I would try to amp up my devotion and discipline to him, hoping I'd get a better you know, outcome. He said, but then I met this NFL quarterback. And he invited me and some other guys into a Bible study. And God was just, you know, blessing this guy's life. He just had power in his life and grace. He also had a losing record. And he was like, I came to see. Here's the thing. The way the promises work in the world, they are merit-based. Right? If I do everything right, if I stay on top of it, if I work, if I execute... If I get the right job, if I network with the right people, if I pick the right person to love, and then I act lovable enough to be loved, all those promises are merit-based. It's only in the Christian gospel. And then you could go to a bunch of other religions that have that. And what happens is that stuff is so in our blood, when you become a Christian, you import it into the Christian faith. So God has to sit there and say, no, my promises are of grace. Now, we'll get into how faith plays into that, but you're never going to understand faith if you don't understand they are by grace. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, every spiritual blessing in heaven and earth has been given to us before we were even born because God foreloved us. And how does that help? Just two ways, and I'll close. I think it really helps us with anxiety. Because, again, as you take some time and think about, what, what, what have I built my life upon? If you're anxious, somehow you have built your life upon conditional promises and meritorious promises. Because living under the promise of grace, I, Jesus, when he, I love his counsel on anxiety. I read it so much because I'm prone to be such an anxious person. And there's that little phrase after he says, don't you know you're more valued than the thing? You know, stop worrying about what you wear. Don't you know you're valued? Don't you know you're valued? Don't you know you're valued? And then he says, children, don't fear. God is pleased to give you the kingdom. It's like in the parable of the two sons when the father says to the cranky elder brother that goes, I never got anything. He goes, son, all I had was with you the whole time. If we're anxious, it's because we don't get that. But number two, I think it helps our lives not get gobbled up. And so we have a little left over to give to people. When you're living under God's promise, we're not so consumed with, I've got to get it myself. And so as we begin this series, um, I, I do want to ask you seriously to take a few minutes. And, and the way, way you can do it is this. Look at uh, what... What consumes your thoughts and your desires and where you spend your time and follow that down to the foundation and it'll help you see this is the foundational promise I'm living on and could we now swap that out for the personal promise of the covenant of grace in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we um, thank you for the foundation that you have fulfilled through thousands of years through your son Christ. Would you help every one of us here this week to see, show us where our false confidence is and show us you. In Christ's name, amen.